الجزيرة بودكاست Over the past decades, drag culture has steadily emerged from the underground to the mainstream. Now shows like RuPaul's Drag Race are staples on TVs around the world. And remember, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Can I get an amen up in here? Amen. But the conversation has grown beyond drag. In recent years, gender expression and transgender rights have become part of the LGBTQ plus community's fight for equality. That's how we are designed to exist as humans, hopefully, is to be who we want to be. And I thought that was the point of America. But a torrent of proposed laws is also emerging in states across the U.S. that seems to be targeting the LGBTQ plus community. From drag performances... Members of the Proud Brooks and other conservatives who formed a smaller but still vocal opposition to Drag Story Hour. To the lives of transgender people. Transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. As trans communities prepare to mark International Trans Visibility Day this week, what does it feel like for those who now find themselves under attack? And what are they doing to fight back? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Chase Strangio, an attorney at the ACLU based in New York. Chase has been at the forefront of pushing for trans rights in the U.S. He represented Chelsea Manning against the U.S. military. And he argued in front of the Supreme Court to defend trans people from being fired for their identity. But this year has been off to a rough start. I'm hanging in. It's, you know, it's been a, a not great legislative 2023, but we're trucking along. Mm-hmm. So, Chase, let's start with what's happening in the southern U.S. state of Tennessee, where lawmakers have recently passed two major bills. Tennessee became the first state in the country to restrict drag show performances. The bill signed yesterday limits performances on public property considered harmful to minors. According to one of the laws, drag performances are now considered adult cabaret, with male or female impersonators listed in the same category as strippers and go-go dancers. This means soon it will be a misdemeanor to perform drag in public and a felony every time after your first charge. And then another law made Tennessee the latest state to block access to puberty blockers, hormone therapies, and surgical procedures for transgender youth. The governor banned gender-affirming medical care for minors, even if the child's parent approves. So, Chase, what's at stake for people affected by this? And can you walk us through what that means? These were the very first bills introduced by Tennessee in this legislative session. The very first bill that was filed was a bill that would categorically ban medical treatment for transgender adolescents to treat gender dysphoria. And this is medical treatment that is supported by every major medical association in the United States. So, for example, if someone ends up being diagnosed with gender dysphoria, which is the medical condition that many transgender people are diagnosed with, 
they will not be able to initiate treatment in the state of Tennessee in accordance with medical standards. But on top of that, the law also will cut off treatment for individuals currently receiving treatment by March of 2024. So what that means is you could be a 15-year-old transgender person in the state of Tennessee who has relied on this particular medical care and come one year from now, that care will be abruptly terminated and it may be impossible for people to continue access to the treatment that they need. And so this is a law that in essence is bringing the judgment of the state in the medical decision-making, the parental decision-making of doctors, patients, and their parents, and disrupting the medical care that people are relying on, and that really does save lives. The American Medical Association has warned that interfering in the health care of transgender minors can lead to higher levels of mental health disorders, substance abuse, and suicide. I asked Chase what this will mean for people living in the state. How many children will be affected by this in Tennessee? It's hard to say exactly. My estimation based on conversations with the major medical providers is that probably somewhere around six or 700 young people are currently receiving treatment in Tennessee. And not only does the law ban uh, doctors in Tennessee from providing the care, it also restricts telehealth provision of care. This law explicitly bans the use of telehealth by providers outside the state of Tennessee to patients who are in Tennessee. So it has even a broader reach than just within the borders of Tennessee. Say if you're in Nashville, Tennessee, all of a sudden you're calling a clinic in Minneapolis, Minnesota, hoping that you can either drive all that way, which will take days, or fly if you can afford it. But the providers in Minneapolis are now telling people that they have wait lists over a year to see people because of the demand by virtue of all of these other states cutting off care. So we're really on the verge of a national crisis in the United States. Mm. This is not unlike what we're seeing in the abortion context, where you have a patchwork of laws now, almost 50% of the country banning abortion. Not only does that impact people in their ability to access abortion in their state, but the clinics in other states are at capacity in their ability to see patients because of what this means for the national picture of healthcare access. So... The justification that's given for many of these anti-trans bills is to protect children. The bill is not to punish anybody, it's to protect children from having surgeries and treatments that can be detrimental or can have long-lasting effects. What is your response to that argument? I will say as a trans person and as a parent of a minor child, this is all just so distressing. And when we start to posit and situate trans people as inherent threats to children, that starts to authorize the state to intrude upon the freedom of trans people generally. And that's really what we're seeing here are laws that are systematically aimed at cutting off trans people from the material things that we need to survive. So when we start to position all of transness and really queerness as a threat to children, I really worry about what this means going into the 2024 presidential elections and just generally for the health and well-being of trans communities. 
But even before Tennessee introduced these laws, people who grew up there say it wasn't easy if you didn't fit into the traditional mold. It was small-town life. It was lonely, to be honest, as an overly feminine, queer individual. My name is Eureka O'Hara, the drag persona from RuPaul's Drag Race, and now I'm the host and producer on the show on HBO called We're Here. Eureka has performed for fans around the world as an openly transgender drag queen. But she started off very differently in her hometown of East Tennessee. My grandmother raised me extremely religious. She was Pentecostal Baptist. And so I was very religious. And in that sense, I hid from myself and also from the world my queerness, my femininity. Eureka discovered drag in her final year of high school. And those performances, which Tennessee has now banned, changed her life. I was like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. It's art. It's theatrical. It's hyper-feminine. It's glamorous. I come from a single mother, so we didn't have a lot growing up. So drag, to me, was like, oh, I get to live this fantasy of glamour and excitement and beauty and femininity that I've had to hide my entire life. And when I did drag for the first time, I was so scared. I carried my purse out on stage at New Beginnings Nightclub in Johnson City, Tennessee, and could barely move my mouth. But they screamed, hollered for me, and it made me feel so celebrated and good for the first time in my life for everything that I always wanted to be. At that moment is when I think I realized I was never going to stop doing this, you know? It became my life because it was the only time I could feel like myself was through drag. And it's where I found family. It was also around that time that Eureka decided she wanted to transition, but she struggled with outside pressures. I knew from a very young age who I was, immediately who I wanted to be and what gender I would prefer to live as, but never had the opportunity I went through a lot of really dark experiences to get to where I am today. Socially, when I was trans there in East Tennessee from 18 to 23, I went through a lot of abuse, a lot of mental abuse socially, um, sexually and physically abused. So I decided to detransition after a couple of really traumatic experiences. I don't want to go into full detail on the trauma, but it made me feel like I would never have success as this trans individual in this area. And I was right, I think, to detransition. But the truth is, is I took a step back and I listened to the voices and the people's opinions of saying, you know, well, you never gave the boy side of you a chance at such a young age and all these things, which we're actually fighting now in trans legislation. When Eureka's home state passed the laws targeting both drag shows and transgender care, she said she was sad, but not surprised. My first reaction was, well, that's Tennessee, you know. And not that I didn't have a lot of amazing experiences in Tennessee. I met some incredible queer people that helped me survive and become the person that I am today. But we all had to live discreetly or try to manipulate our way through society to keep ourselves safe, you know? And it was very tricky. And a lot of people that I know that are trans did not survive. And you had queer people as well. And a lot of people have moved away because of such. 
I do believe that people will become more afraid as it's becoming more public knowledge that it's okay to discriminate against who we are. That causes fear. And that does push a lot of people back into closets. It pushes them into hiding, which is where a lot of the darkness that I've talked about comes from. But Tennessee isn't the only place that's seeing a surge in legislation targeting the LGBTQ plus community. After the break, how laws on trans rights have become more common and coordinated. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. We carry on exploring the lives of history's most notable figures, from Rosa Parks to Pol Pot. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts. Tennessee started the year by passing two controversial laws against drag performances and health care for transgender youth. But it's not the only state. This is a lot bigger than Tennessee. Alex Petrovnia is the founder of the Transformations Project. The group has been tracking trans legislation across the U.S. for the past couple of years. We're seeing an exponential growth pattern in the number of bills being introduced. And additionally, we are seeing an escalation in the types of bills being introduced. The goal is to win by spamming as many bills as you possibly can so that activists and organizations cannot resist them as effectively. Already this year, activists have counted upwards of 350 anti-LGBTQ bills submitted in more than 40 states. Many are specifically anti-trans. The Kentucky General Assembly passing a sweeping anti-trans bill allows teachers to ignore a student's preferred pronouns. A bill that would require Idaho school districts to separate bathrooms and locker rooms by biological sex. In North Dakota, state representatives passed a bill that would ban high school athletes who are transgender from playing on teams of the gender they identify with. And it has to do with the fact that these bills are coordinated and the fact that anti-LGBT lobbying groups are providing often literally the exact bill text to representatives. And it's critical to understand that this is a coordinated assault on trans people and not only trans rights, but also on trans lives. Every single day, I have people reach out to me asking, what do I do if this bill passes? You know, where do I go? How do I protect myself? How do I protect my family? I have people reaching out to me and asking me, do I have to die? Alex says while Tennessee was the first to pass a drag ban, more than a dozen other state legislatures have similar bills in the works. He worries that the consequences could reach far beyond drag performers. A lot of the anti-drag bills are phrased even less cautiously than Tennessee's. And a lot of them include any sort of quote-unquote cross-dressing, which basically means that you are creating a government-mandated gendered dress code. This makes trans people's existence in public illegal. But it also hurts any gender nonconformity. And none of this can be divorced from the fact that the United States has a policing system wherein individual officers get to decide how to enforce laws. And if the law is poorly defined, that is more of a license for individual officers to make judgment calls. And those judgment calls are going to be weaponized against marginalized people. 
they're going to be weaponized against trans people. Protests have been held in support of trans rights. And some states have enacted trans protections. But Alex says that's not enough. These are largely much more expensive states to live in, which has severe consequences when you realize that trans people have incredibly high poverty rates compared to the general population. And we also need to acknowledge that having safe states is not good enough because there are trans people everywhere and they deserve to be able to live. That's the level we're at right now is do trans people deserve to live? Bills aimed at trans people and drag performers seem to be part of a political campaign. I asked Chase, the lawyer from the ACLU, about the timing. Why do you think there's been such a concerted effort focused on trans rights right now? Does it have to do with the upcoming presidential election? I will say most immediately, it is likely connected to the 2024 presidential election. And then I think there are other explanations that are particular to sort of what's happened politically in the United States over the last decade. At the Supreme Court, for example, the decision striking down bans on marriage equality, recognizing employment protections for all LGBTQ people, really sparking a backlash that coincided as well with a backlash to the increase in trans visibility. So I think you have sort of the overlay of a backlash to progress, a backlash to visibility, a rise in right-wing government in the United States and around the world, then coinciding with an election of critical importance to the state and nature of democracy in the United States. I do think people should very seriously think about the fact, though, that the fixation on trans people is not really going to start or end with us and that allowing these attacks to proliferate will only be sort of the gateway drug to larger assaults on our bodily autonomy, on our democracy more broadly. And Chase worries that extremes are already becoming more mainstream. Here's far-right commentator Michael Knowles delivering a speech on the main stage of a major conservative conference in the U.S. Transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. The whole preposterous ideology. Former president and 2024 candidate Donald Trump has echoed those ideas. On day one, I will revoke Joe Biden's cruel policies on gender-affirming care. Ridiculous. I think it's important for people to really sit and pause and think about, what would this type of law mean for me? What would it mean if I could never safely go to the bathroom? What would it mean if I could never access the healthcare that I need? What would it mean if every time I took my child to particular states, they, the threat that they would be taken from me would be immediate and acute? And how is the ACLU working to push back on some of these bills? We are working in every state across the country to try to block and stop any of these laws from passing. We have not had the types of success that we've had in other years because many states have made it clear that this is priority number one for the Republican leadership and that there's nothing that we can do to stop it. Uh, We have had some success by mobilizing widespread opposition, by getting businesses to oppose pieces of legislation. 
making clear that these are not constituent-driven pieces of legislation. These are pre-drafted bills that are coming from well-funded global groups that are attacking LGBTQ people around the world. And so we've had some success in blocking the bills, but that is realistically decreasing and we are going to have to continue to litigate in a very hostile court system. When it comes to trans visibility, what comes to mind about the state of where we are right now? You know, I recognize that visibility comes with a significant set of costs and not everyone can bear those costs equally, particularly those who experience the most violence and backlash as a result of the visibility of a few. We absolutely must celebrate the beauty of visible transness and also never forget to accompany that celebration of visibility with action. For Eureka, her visibility is a form of resistance. I'm fighting by existing. I'm Wonder Woman, honey. I show up everywhere and look fierce and fabulous and do what I do. And because people are listening to me with the platform that I have, I know that it's my responsibility, not only as a trans individual, but an active drag queen, to continue showing people that I love them, that I relate with them, and to also let the heteronormative community or anyone that is posing my position as a drag queen, let them know too, I love you too. And I don't agree with everything that you choose to do in your life either, but it's none of my business. And I support you if you're continuing on the road to your happiness and try to survive in a world that's already extremely hard to survive in. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Miranda Lynn and Chloe K. Lee with Amy Walters, Ashish Mahotra, Nagin Oliai, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Adam Abugad and Munira Al-Tusari are our engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.